Welcome everyone to episode 197 of the Reds Unrestricted podcast. Liverpool have won the Carabao Cup and I'm your host David Comerford, joined by Mark Baker to give our match reaction. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So a third straight final between Liverpool and Chelsea ended in a goalless draw somehow, but this time penalties weren't required as they were in the Carabao Cup and the FA Cup a couple of years ago. We'd seen disallowed goals at both ends of the pitch. We'd seen both teams hit the woodwork. But just when it seemed like it was impossible to score in this fixture at at that stadium, Liverpool pop up with the 118th minute winner through Virgil van Dijk. The man who'd actually seen his earlier goal disallowed loves to talk about the circumstances of that a bit later on. But Liverpool have won this competition for the second time under Jurgen Klopp. It's the first trophy they've won more than once during his tenure. A chance to obviously change that before the season is out. Their seventh major trophy under him overall and their record-extending 10th triumph in this competition. I think Man City are second with eight. And overall, in the leaderboard, which always gets circulated after these uh, compositions, that's Liverpool with 46 major honours, three clear of Manchester United in top spot. So obviously plenty to discuss, not just from the game, but also in general. Um, Mark, first off, talk to me about your level of pride at Liverpool managing to win that in spite of all the adversity that they faced before the game and during the game. Yeah, it was crazy, really, Dave. I think um, when you sort of, um, I suppose, proper as a, as a stop and think about it during that period where obviously the last of stages in the game when Liverpool's side was just massively changed with players from the, the youth academy, obviously, on the field, you just thought to yourself, wow, like it was a moment that you just sort of looked at that starting lineup and just thought to yourself, even if someone would have said a few weeks ago that Liverpool are going to be playing a, a cup final and that's going to be your, your side that you're going to have out on the field of play, I don't think anyone would have believed you really. And I think it just sort of encapsulated Klopp's reign as a, as a collective really, sort of, sort of categorised everything that the manager's been about and what he's created at Liverpool in the, you know, Liverpool, don't get me wrong, have spent money during his time, but against more wealthy uh, opponents with bigger budgets, He's been able to maximise the most out of more um, lesser resources, might I say. And the sort of mentality to be able to to throw players on, have trust in players when many players, many people from the outside are saying you should be buying this player, you should be buying that player, you should be spending X amount more money to put his trust in different players in different positions because they can see a pathway to the first team, some of which have gone on to be first team players, obviously, for Liverpool. And I think it just sort of highlighted everything that's been great about his management, not just that we know, I mean, I always say that he's such a undervalued elite tactical manager, but I think sort of the harmony and the atmosphere that you can create at a football club to be able to, to drain every sort of last inch out of the players at your disposal and players being able to come in from the youth academy and replicate the roles of the players in the first team, have a clear idea of how they're going to play both in and out of possession. And to come in at that stage of a game with everything on the line against, you know, let, I know Chelsea haven't performed massively well this season, but still hugely talented players who've been signed for, in some cases, astronomical fees and more than hold their own and go on to win the game. Obviously, with a collective of, of um, experienced Liverpool players. Yeah, I just think it summed up his, his reign, really, and it was a fitting way 
to to sort of win the file. I felt it encapsulated all that he's created, really. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there as well because it was something I said on Twitter that I felt like it was kind of a victory that was built on belief and belief has been a huge part of kind of the best moments of Klopp's tenure, whether that's, you know, winning trophies or just individual victories. And there was a moment when at the end of the 90 minutes um, and in the huddle before the extra time, Klopp said to them, um, based on what people on Twitter said, he said to them, you know, I couldn't be more proud. And it just felt like it would have been so easy for, you know, the players involved to just, with everything that had gone on within the game, with the players that had been missing beforehand, to just have this sort of sense at the back of, it, back of their mind that, you know, this isn't going to be our day, especially with the way Liverpool were rocking a bit at the end of um, the 90 minutes as well. Um, but Klopp managed to kind of maintain those belief levels and you just kind of found yourself more and more thinking in the back of your mind, you know, Liverpool might actually do this as kind of extra time went on. Um, but it, it, just, it feels pretty extraordinary that they managed it. I mean, just to kind of put it in perspective, I mean, here's the lineups at the start of extra time. So for Chelsea, you had Petrovic, Gusto, Disassi, Colwell, Chilwell, then um, midfield of Caicedo, Fernandez, um, and Gallagher, and then Palmer, Mudrick, and Nkunku was the front line. Um, Liverpool, Kellera, Gomez, Canate, Van Dyke, Robertson. Obviously, Canate ended up coming off later in extra time, but that's probably, you know, not too far off something resembling a first choice back five for Liverpool. Um, and then it, it is when it starts to get almost unrecognisable. You've got a midfield of Endo, McConnell and Clark and a front line of Elliot, Dans and Diaz. I mean, you look at that. I mean, four of those sort of front six players, if you like, a lot of Liverpool fans, committed Liverpool fans as well, not just casual ones, wouldn't have heard of any of those players when you look at the, the lads in the academy and then Wataru Endo as well. And it felt like when you looked at the starting lineups, there wasn't a huge, you know, difference in Chelsea's favour despite the injuries, but it was the bench that was the cause of concern at the start. I mean, Liverpool used the kind of only, you know, one of the only two players who was sort of established that's come on uh, with Gomez when Gravenberch got injured. Their bench was worth just over 15 million. Chelsea's was worth just under 200 million. So this idea that Chelsea were hit as hard as injuries at Liverpool were is just obviously a joke on that basis. And somehow, in spite of all of that, um, Liverpool sub still manages to get a goal contribution with Simakas getting the assist for uh, for Van Dijk's goal. Um, and I think that's 40 times now this season a Liverpool sub has either scored or assisted in all competitions, which is crazy, obviously. And I just thought to myself watching it, like that felt like a pre-season team that, that we were seeing there. I mean, that you, Liverpool are going, I think they announced the week, they're going to play in um, America in... Um, in July, July and August. And if they had that team on the pitch for the period of one of the games, you'd be like, Do you know what, that's about right for the friendly to win a final against the the level of um, talent that Liverpool were up against, like you say, Mark, is just an absolutely unbelievable achievement. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, this has to rank, doesn't it, as one of the best moments, the best wins of Klopp's entire tenure. I think, you know, there's certain games like Barcelona, for example, which will always be out on their own, but this has got to be sort of almost right up there behind that, wasn't it, with everything that went on? Yeah, I think so, Dave. I mean, how many other managers make them changes at that time in the game? And I know, you know, people can say largely Liverpool's squad is sort of shaped by the fact that they're without X amount of individuals, which means that obviously your benches are going to be have to be made up of academy players to make up the numbers. And that's what it is, I think, for some managers. It is a case of making up the numbers. They're there on the bench in name, but the reality of them getting on the, the field of play 
is not really going to happen or you might get little cameos for the last couple of minutes sometimes it's even sort of just a gesture at the end I suppose just to, to bring them onto the field to play with no real relevance to actually believing in the players and seeing that they're going to have a, a long-term future or, or that they can contribute at that moment in time but for Jürgen Klopp to bring them on at that moment and obviously not just the one change we see multiple substitutions which eventually led to Liverpool being a team who were vastly made up of academy graduates and I think the big point for this season is that Klopp's just instilled that belief that these players are part of the squad that they can contribute and he's willing to to turn to them in the in the toughest of moments I remember obviously when we had uh, Arsenal in the FA Cup tie I think he threw on um, Bobby Clark and, and Connor Bradley for example who've gone on to make more appearances at a crucial stage in the game and that's the difference, you know, players, all squads have academy players within their squad when they're decimated by injuries. But the fact that you use them at that moment and in, a, in an actual domestic league cup final, I mean, it, it's it's quite unbelievable. I can't think of any other comparison, really, Dave. I really can't in, in terms of all the time I've been watching football for a manager to be able to take them risks at that time. I just think ever, virtually nine, 99 out of 100 managers in that same situation as has been proved by history, maybe 100 would not have made them changes when he did. He would have persevered with the players out on the field to play and and not took that gamble. Um, and and listen, I know he's got big games and a big schedule coming up, but in the the heat of the battle, when Liverpool are obviously drawing at that moment in time, a huge decision. And 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 yet it'll, it, it's a massive result just because of the context of where Liverpool are in terms of the squad at the moment, and in the context, I suppose, of actually getting over the line after making them changes, because it's one thing, obviously. If, if Liverpool would have lost the game, it would have been a valiant effort. Some may have even said he put the, the young players on to sort of camouflage over if Liverpool didn't get the result, potentially. That's the way way things work in the modern world. But the fact that they went to, and I would say, fully deserved to win the game based on the extra time performance as well, that's got to give huge belief and to the to the squad and the, and, the, and the culture of what Liverpool are trying to create, really. So I thought, totally agree, for different reasons and because of the context of the game, and where Liverpool currently are, what you won't see that very often, if ever again. I thought it was, and that's not that's not overegging things as Liverpool supporter. I thought it was, it was unbelievable the decisions he made, and then to get the results even even more so afterwards. Yeah, I mean, we, we could easily have been sat here talking about a narrow defeat. You know, the chances Chelsea had. Um, we're obviously in a situation where we're into the final couple of minutes of extra time. Um, everyone thinks the game's going to go to penalties at that stage. And then that's a bit of a toss of the coin situation, really. Um, and and I think if Liverpool had lost it, I think that we would have been on here, you know, still praising the team very heavily because regardless of the result, that was an effort that kind of needed to be um, to be praised because the the level of of commitment that that the players showed, the quality that the young players demonstrated when they came on, and to make it as much of a battle as it was. In all those circumstances, I think was was heroic to be honest. Um, and I think that was the sense that I got reading social media at the time was that just a sense of pride, whether it was going to be win or lose from that point was already set in stone. And you know, I'm gonna you know talk positively about a few of the young lads who came on um later on, but I'll be honest, I mean, sitting there during the game, I was like Bobby Clark's the only one I'd I'd bring on if I was Klopp, just in the sense that we know he's um probably one of those who's knocking on the door in terms of making that step up from the under-21s to the first-team squad. The rest of them aren't really at that level yet. So I was like, you're not going to be able to necessarily use the full extent of your bench here. But when he did it, you know, he has been brave. He has shown the trust and 
in the young players before. Um, wasn't convinced it would work today, but it did. So um, I can't pretend that just because it worked out well that I was 100% behind it from the start. But that, if anything, shows how good a decision it was because it was so brave. And, you know, we won't talk about Chelsea too much. This is a Liverpool podcast, but I, I just think to sit deep and almost invite Liverpool onto them in extra time. When it, you mentioned, you know, the lineups that were on show from both teams, I just thought it was an act of cowardice, to be honest, um, in a footballing sense. I think I, I saw someone on Twitter say you can't blame Pochettino too much. Chelsea had five big chances in the game. They didn't take any of them. And if they'd done that, then it's it's a different story, obviously. But that, for me, is a thing that really wouldn't sit right from the Chelsea standpoint. It's why Chelsea were, were so meek and so scared in that, in that period. And all the pressure transferred onto them when Liverpool threw the young players on, when the injuries obviously took their toll, and they completely wilted under it. Um, in that period of the game, to be honest. And it is a, it's a shameful defeat for them when, if Liverpool had a first-choice team, they would have been overwhelming favourites and it's a completely different match. But in the circumstances, Chelsea absolutely had to win um, that game today. Um, and who knows what's going to happen uh, for them for the rest of the season and beyond. But let's talk about the game itself then, um, which, I mean, it feels like a long time ago, the, the actual 90 minutes now, but it ebbed and flowed, didn't it, Mark? I mean... How did you see sort of the balance of things um, across normal time? And then we'll talk about extra time in a second. Sure, I'll tell you about I found it very similar to the, the previous cup finals that Chelsea have played against Liverpool, to be perfectly honest with you, in the sense that I'm never a person who's sort of outcome biased. So the fact that Liverpool would have went on to get went on to win the game, for example, but Chelsea had, had a multi, multiple chances within the game like they did, and it was solely Chelsea, I, I, I wouldn't be satisfied for Liverpool, for example. You, you, you can't just judge it on the fact that they ended up getting over the line. But I felt it was a pretty even game and I felt the other cup finals were actually quite even as well in the sense that you could easily make an argument at different stages within the game that both teams had really good opportunities to go on and win the game and, and opportunities that should be taken. And it really did play out similar to the last two cup finals, I think, where you were almost sitting there thinking to yourself, I can't believe some of these opportunities haven't gone in the back of the net. I felt it was a strange game, really, because I felt Liverpool were doing very well in the game in general. And I felt Liverpool were edging the game, not just in terms of possession, but opportunities on goal and the areas they were getting in very often. But then I felt that probably Chelsea edged the clear-cut chances within the game when sort of the ball was turned over and ended up getting in Liverpool's half. And the goalkeeper obviously made some some great saves. So I felt, on the whole, I felt it was a quite even game. It could have swung either way, depending on who it was the executed their chance at a specific moment in the game. I think if one of the teams would have got the goal earlier within the game, I think that would have been a massive turning point then to probably go on and win it. As it was, that didn't happen and it kept it on sort of a knife edge throughout. But yeah, I'd say I'd say overall in the game, um, it was pretty even, I'd say, between the, between the two sides overall. Yeah, I think the first half, um, in my head, you can sort of split it into thirds because Liverpool made a really positive start to the game. Chelsea um, looked a little bit sort of um, rattled early on. And then I think kind of in that middle period of the first half, they started playing some really good football and they had a disallowed goal in that stage and it was a concern and spell of the game. But then Liverpool, I think, managed to steady things a bit and finish the half strong. Second half, I'd say, again, obviously we saw big chances at both ends. I'd say Liverpool looked like they were kind of edging that. Um, they had to disallow goal themselves. But when, when the half ended... And there was an almighty scramble not long before the end of the game. I don't know if it's in stoppage time or just before that Liverpool just about managed to survive. 
And at that point, it was looking a little bit bleak in the sense of Chelsea just looked like they had all the energy, all the momentum in that period. I mean, based on how the, the 90 minutes had ended, were you worried about extra time, whether it was going to be sort of a bridge too far for Liverpool? Because I said on Twitter, it wasn't even the bare bones at that point. It, it, was, it was even worse than that. I mean, some of the players coming in who hadn't had a lock in before these last few games. Yeah, it was concerned at that stage, Dave, wasn't it? I mean, obviously with the with the younger players all all sort of coming on in one go, go and looking at the lineup, you, it was vastly inexperienced, and I felt they struggled to settle within that period. And within that period, the game could have been taken away from Liverpool. They were really sort of on the ropes. But then I felt sort of just as extra time begun, Liverpool got some settled possession. There seemed to be a little bit of confidence build within the side, and then you would have. You know, you're a bit more secure in the fact that, well, hang on a minute, actually, Liverpool can actually go on and win this game from this point. And I think the psychological element came into it a little bit as well when we talk about sort of Klopp having the faith in the players and putting them in at that specific moment in time because not only does it show great trust in them players from a Liverpool's perspective to give them confidence, but also I think from a Chelsea point, the psychological aspect, it almost shifts the sort of psyche amongst the two teams because you've got Liverpool there Massively confident because the manager's confident in these players to put them on them. They bring them with confidence. But on the other hand, it now gives Chelsea something even more to lose. And I think that sort of dynamic shifted in whether or not that was the way Chelsea then approached it, um, meant to approach it. That was how, obviously, they were they went about it because it was their, their tactic, if you like. But I think it was more from a psychological perspective that they then just shrunk. And it was sort of Liverpool were on the front foot then, whether Chelsea or not felt they had something to lose. Obviously, there's a lot of physical aspects going involved then with Liverpool bringing a lot of players on. So it's difficult to know why that dynamic shifted the way it did. But certainly that element and I felt might have played a part because all of a sudden Chelsea are looking at it and thinking, hang on a minute, if we don't win this game, what's the psychological effect on, on us kind of thing in terms of if we don't get it get it over the line and and I think that them kinds of things did come into it. And I think that's why as well, it may, it may have been a masterstroke from Klopp at that time because first of all, he needed fresh legs. But by bringing all the players on, it almost, almost shifted the dynamic in, in Liverpool's favour, maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I do think Neville made a good point in commentary when he said when it was nil-nil and the game was still in the balance, he said, you know, can Chelsea get over the line in this scenario? And that was the thing, you know, did they have the character they needed for the occasion, despite being the overwhelming favourites with the players they had on the pitch? And as it turned out, they didn't. And um, I do think that as a as a player or as a fan of Chelsea, you'd almost hate to be in that situation when all the onus is on you, all the expectation is on you. But that's obviously still no excuse for not being able to, to get the job done today. Um, there was a couple of moments of controversy during the game, um, Moises Caicedo didn't even get booked for the challenge that injured Ryan Gravenberch. Personally, I thought it was a yellow card, nothing more. You can't judge the um, sort of severity of a tackle by the outcome of it all the time. And I didn't think that it was a red card ready tackle. I don't know if you disagree, Mark. The other one would be the disallow goal uh, for Virgil van Dijk, um, which is obviously for Wattari Wendo. I think it was Colwell um, that he blocked. Um and it was decided that he was in an offside position and interfering with play. So what, what was your take on those two incidents? Uh, yes, yeah, start with the the tackle. Uh, first, David, it's a bad tackle. I don't think there's, anyone can have any doubts about that. You can see 
in the way that the ankle sort of snaps back. I think he's probably got away with it because it was low. That's the only reason I could probably give for the, well, listen as well, like I say every time, the VAR from a sort of human aspect, psychological point of view, don't want to interfere if they feel that it's not 100% necessary. And the fact that it was lower, they probably thought to themselves, we've got an We've got an opportunity here not to intervene. I mean, it looked a horrible tackle when you actually look it back. But judging by the height of the tackle, I imagine that that's the, just their rationale. I thought it could easily have been a red card. I don't think that there could be any doubt about that. I thought it was it was a really poor one. Um, but I can see in a world where the VAR doesn't want to get involved and he needs a you know a reason not to, that I can see that the, the height of the tackle may have been the, the get out, if you like. Uh, obviously. Really poor for Liverpool because it loses a player who essentially has replaced Curtis Jones in the side. Now it looks like he's going to have a prolonged period of time on the, on the substitute bench. You wonder, like, sort of what grade the sprain will be. You're obviously hoping for the lowest possible, really. Um, and with the disallowed goal, I mean, in the emotion of it at the time, you're obviously fuming because you you sort of caught up in it. And but when I've actually stepped away from it now and looked at it, it was it. <laughs> He didn't disguise it enough, Endo, for me. I think the thing is, it was too clear what he was trying to trying to do in that moment in time. And in the world of VAR, when they can go back and look at it, I, I don't think there's any doubt that it was going to get disallowed because just the fact that he made almost the word I'd use is he made it too obvious. I think we know it goes on in sort of every penalty area. Liverpool actually got a goal. Um, very recently, I think with Cody Gakpo, where he did a similar sort of movement to block a player to allow Van Dijk to score. But Gakpo's was subtle. It was subtle enough so it couldn't be, well, listen, it could be detected, but there was enough there to say, well, he's just sort of standing his ground, where I began those, <coughs> pardon me, eyes are fixated on the player. And because of that, it was always going to get given, um, unfortunately. When I actually take a step for, back from it and now look, you can see why the referee has, has given it. Sorry, sorry, the VAR. <laughs> VAR. <coughs> sorry, Dave. Yeah, carry on. <coughs> yeah, so my take on it is that um, letter of the law, it shouldn't it shouldn't stand. You know, he's offside, he's a very with play. <coughs> but we have the discussion all the time when it comes down to consistency. And I just don't, it just didn't feel like the kind of thing that, Goals are getting disallowed for, and maybe they should be, but because I, I don't have a problem with it if it doesn't count. And you know, in loads of other games where there's a similar type of incident, they, they disallow it, you know, that's fine. Um, but if you're gonna let it happen in other games, and then in this one, I mean, it feels especially, I know this isn't how it works, but it feels especially egregious when it's a, it's a cup final as well. It's kind of have that as the, the moment where you change your precedence, and um, that's why it didn't sit right. I think that was the point Carragher was making as well, and actually, sort of really good. Um, tweet on this which kind of summed up I think why a lot of Liverpool fans were it just just didn't feel that it was almost fair whether that's the right way or not to actually disallow the goal and it's um, Matt Ladson um, at, at this is Anfield he said VAR was not introduced to find reasons to disallow goals it was intended for clear and obvious errors and I kind of felt like in that moment it was as if they were kind of forensically going through the, the actual set piece and looking for a reason to kind of looking for something to investigate type of thing because it wasn't like I don't think there would have been too many Chelsea players complaining about that and maybe if it is on the other side and it gets given against us you're like well you know why is that allowed type thing and I fully accept that but I do like to think I'm someone who 
you know, on this podcast and, and outside of it is quite sort of balanced when it comes to the refereeing decisions. But this one, for me, just I, I didn't think it was right. Um, but we'll see if it, it is something that is enforced more and more. Um, I, think, I think, sorry, Dave, sorry to interrupt. I think um, I always, I sort of, when I've stepped back and had a look at it, you know, they, they always talk about, oh, well, pulling goes on in the box all the time kind of thing. And it does, obviously, shirt pulling. But I think you've got to know sort of when to let go of the shirt if it goes on too long, for example. And I think with end, though, I think the best example I can give is that Gakpo one in the fact that I think Gakpo's was perfectly executed, the block, because it was so subtle. It looked like it wasn't... Essentially, you could make an argument whether whether it was um, deliberate or not. It was just clever. Whereas I just think because Endo was so focused on looking at the player rather than the ball, I think that that, when obviously in the, the world of VAR, when it gets played back... I just think that's why it was given. But I totally I totally get what you're saying. And I, I was obviously not happy at the time, but it's just having a look back at it. That's probably the best way I can explain it. Yeah, sometimes there's a little bit of an art to uh, to that sort of thing inside the box. And, and maybe it was um, a little bit too clumsy. But um, just to finish off then, I mean, we've got to talk about some of kind of the the individual standouts. You mentioned the goalkeeper already. Um couple of Allison-esque saves from him and uh, made his body really big to keep out Palmer in the first half. And then in the second, Gallagher threw on goal, Keller out quickly to his feet. And then by the time he goes to shoot, you know, he's right there to stop him. And he's made nine saves in the game. And in terms of the actual advanced numbers, um, Andrew Beasley, who's obviously really good for this sort of thing, um, put on Twitter earlier that he saved 2.9 XG on target to keep a clean sheet, um, which a goalkeeper has only done four times in the big five leagues in the last seven seasons. So just to put in context how special that goalkeeping performance was from him. And this is a player, Mark, who's had a lot of questions asked of him by um, Liverpool fans online this season when he's had some difficult moments. But he would have played this game whether Alisson was injured or not. And and that is sort of a career-defining performance from him, isn't it, surely? I mean, we don't think he's going to be at Liverpool that much longer, maybe. But... You know, there's got to be a lot of clubs looking at that and thinking, because we need to sign, we need to sign him if he's available. Yeah, I think we spoke about it on a podcast a few weeks ago, Dave, about the fact that, you know, uh, there's been a few goals this season, which you can say that the, the goalkeeper should have done a little bit better on. But in general, whenever he's played for Liverpool, he's really acquitted himself really well and, and stepped into Alisson's shoes and produced good performances on the whole. There's always going to be a big disparity when you've got Alisson goal compared to virtually any goalkeeper in Europe, first choice goalkeepers, never mind number two. So I think the fact that he's, um, and that's shown up in sort of the post-shot XG and all that kind of thing. But I think that in general, I, I couldn't understand why sort of there was a little bit of criticism of him. Obviously, he's a goalkeeper who's coming in and not having that regular flow of games. And don't get me wrong, at times this season, I think he should have done better on one or two goals. I felt actually he should have done better on the, who did we play last week? Luton Town. He was diving backwards. Goalkeeper's stance should always be forwards. The body weight should always be forwards. He ends up in a position where he's, he's, he's he ends up on his, his back, on his backside, which should never happen. Um, and I felt that was a goalkeeping error. So there is little bits, obviously, that he's not going to be at Allison's level at, which is to be expected. But in general, he's done really well for Liverpool. And like you say, today, an outstanding performance. It really was. I mean, the first save from Cole Palmer, absolutely brilliant in terms of the way he was able to to basically close in on Palmer in the you know close range distance spread himself as big, big as he possibly could and a brilliant reflex save and then I think it was Conor Gallagher going through in the second half 
all about judging distance, all about judging how you can make that attack and make a decision rather than make it more easy for him by diving in, by overcommitting. He decelerated, he put his brakes on, he delayed magnificently, made himself big, and then could just sort of shepherd the attacker into exactly where he wanted to go and smother the ball as he come towards him. Basically, judging his distance to engage perfectly. And I felt, you know, an outstanding performance in which he made crucial saves at crucial times. And ultimately, because of them saves and the sort of game-changing impact them goals would have had on the game, I think Chelsea would have gone on probably to win the game. I felt whoever sort of scored first would have a really good opportunity to do so. So, no, a, a magnificent performance I felt from him. Yeah, I do think it's one of them where if, if that was Alisson in goal, you know, every Liverpool fan would be sort of worshipping him for a performance like that. And to be fair, I do think Calibre will get the credit he deserves, but that kind of just shows you the level he was performing at today and he saved his best performance of the season for exactly the right moment. Um, who, who else then, Mark, would you say kind of jumped out at you in terms of an individual who, who needs kind of to get their, their flowers, if you like, at the end of um, that game today? Yeah, I think so. So first of all, today's all about obviously the younger players and how they've impacted the results on, on the whole. But I think it can't be discredited that in amongst them sort of performances of the younger players, there were some critical players to Liverpool senior players who, who allowed Liverpool to get over the line. And obviously Virgil van Dijk being one of them. I mean, Liverpool were able to compete in that game because they had certain pillars within their side, senior players who allowed them to do so within the structure of obviously having younger players around them. And Van Dijk in terms of, I've mentioned this before, but the reality of, of centre-half's job these days to be able to manage spacing behind large distances, command the back line. And then, I mean, all of them things that Van Dijk does absolutely better than everyone else. I mean, we've talked before, David, in terms of, I believe he's the best centre-half to play football by a country mile. And that's not my Liverpool bias. I just think as a, as a collective package of what he offers, and one of the lesser mentioned things that we talk about with Van Dijk is his aerial presence in both box. Well, sorry, in the opposition box. We obviously talk about it in the, in the defensive side of things. But I don't believe that any defender since Van Dijk has signed for Liverpool has scored more goals within that, the sort of Premier League. And again, we've not, we've seen his value of that within the last few weeks and in this particular game. I mean, so many centre-halves go up and you don't believe they're going to be a threat. They don't have that sort of... Um, want to be able to win the ball. They don't have that 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 sort of eagerness to be able to score. Every time he goes up, he goes up with an intention to try and make first contact on the ball and score a goal. Magnificent movements. Got across, and this is twice, by the way. It's it's not just the fact that he actually gets there and he's able to muscle himself into the positions, but his actual execution of the headers as well. He makes them almost look simple, but the, the, the time of the run's perfect. But the actual connection on the execution of the ball with the header gives the goalkeeper absolutely no chance. So, I mean, I've mentioned before about how good Van Dijk is in sort of all aspects of the game, but he was a real key again today and, and, and continues to show for me why he's by far the greatest centre-half who played in the Premier League and for me the most complete all-round package. I mean, there was one or two others who I can mention as well, but I, I just wanted to mention Luis Diaz as well. Um, Dave, because I thought in the attacking third, I thought Luis Diaz was the player who was basically the biggest threat for Liverpool. And everything that we talk about Luis Diaz and his, his great attributes in terms of being able to retain the ball in the final third, carry the ball into dangerous areas, have multiple touches in the opposition box. I mean, ironically, probably one of the criticisms of him was also on show today in terms of maybe not having that final action. But in terms of the threat he carries, and his value to Liverpool to be able to, to take Liverpool up the field and be a constant threat and being able to 
basically progressed Liverpool up the pitch. I felt his performance was outstanding um, for Liverpool in general. So there was quite a few who I'd say performed really well. But them two in particular, alongside Endo, which was probably the third one I was going to mention, who had an excellent game in midfield, everything you'd want. And I think he's been magnificent over the last few months, Endo, I must say. Both in and out of possession, keeps it simple, moves the ball, punches the ball through the lines, and also the amount of interceptions is a positional sense. Sorry, I've gone on a bit there, Dave, but just wanted to name a few there. No, I mean, it's the kind of day where you've kind of got to just sort of... um... Keep going and and praising the players, to be honest, because there were there were so many who kind of distinguished themselves out there. I mean, I'll start with Van Dijk. Um, it's the third final where he's won man of the match for Liverpool after the 2019 Champions League and the last League Cup final. So, I mean, that is the kind of thing that adds to your legacy. And, you know, we know that there's sometimes arbitrary criteria there in terms of ranking these players alongside each other. But, you know, delivering in a final is probably one of them where it's like, do you know what, you can understand why that is a bit of a yardstick. Um, and Van Dijk certainly stepped up here. And um, as for Endo, you mentioned doing it on both sides of the ball there. I mean, 91% passing accuracy, 11 out of 17 duels won, six tackles, four fouls drawn. Um, you know, he was he, he did it a bit of everything today. And um, to be honest, I mean, more generally, just kind of sitting there at the end, like he'd survived it. You know, the amount that he was getting through in that game, McAllister looked completely goose to me in the second half. Endo still walking around the pitch in the 120th minute. Um, and that kind of sums up what he's brought to Liverpool, that just complete tirelessness. And he paid off his price tag with his performance today, let alone all the brilliant you know displays he's produced over the course of the season. Um, and I, I think Klopp, when he arrived, called it a genius signing. Um, and there were a lot of reasons to ask questions about it. And, you know, who knows how much of a long-term deal it'll be. But I do think that, again, th- those of us who who did ask questions of it, I was one of them. Not someone who necessarily, you know, wrote him off or anything like that, but was like, why is he being looked at as the solution as opposed to, a, you know, a 50, 60 million pound, you know, defensive midfielder in their early 20s? I mean, you know, we've got to be humble party to a degree, to be honest, because he's been exceptional for Liverpool. I mean... There's a lot of players in that price bracket that I mentioned before who wouldn't have been as good this season, who would have needed a lot more time to deliver than he has. Um, and, you know, just the the attitude that he has on the pitch is absolutely exemplary, to be honest. Um, and he is also a very good footballer as well. It's not just about his, his spirit by any means. And, yeah, then, you know, he said it is a story about the youngsters. And it wasn't just a case of coming on and um, giving a good account to themselves. I thought there was... Really good moments um, from each of them. I think Dan's went went close to scoring a couple of times. He was a real threat in that sort of centre forward role. Um, and Bobby Clark as well, playing in that midfield position, he seemed to win almost all of his fifty fifties um, during his, his performance, which is no mean feat when you consider some of the names he was up against within that midfield. Um, so I think that they justify Klopp's faith in multiple ways. Um, to be honest, those young lads, and hopefully it's the first of many trophies they win during their Liverpool careers. And I saw someone say on Twitter that uh, Dan's has won a trophy in his second professional appearance. So if he keeps that up for the rest of his career, he'll win about 500 or something, um, which uh, should be good going. But yeah, just a, a really special day for those lads, obviously. But yeah, I think we'll leave it there for today's podcast. Um, nice to be jumping on straight after Liverpool winning a trophy and hopefully, obviously, the first Um of a number of trophies that we win in, in, yeah, in Klopp's final season. And it's good to know 
as we said on the pre-match podcast, that there will be at least one piece of major silverware um, for Klopp to sign off, but hopefully not the last, like I say. But Liverpool don't have too much time to celebrate the back in action in midweek against Southampton in the FA Cup. And that means we'll be back with our next podcast then um, with the match reaction for that one. And then Premier League resuming next weekend against Nottingham Forest. So make sure you join us for that. But until then, we'll leave you in the knowledge that Liverpool are 10-time Carabao Cup winners. See you next time.